Welcome to New Models Topsoil. In this episode, we're joined by artist Bjarne Melgaard, who was in town a couple of weeks ago, premiering a new work at the Julius Stoschek Collection. A virtual reality piece called My Trip, which is on view in Berlin through December 15th. If you're not already familiar with Bjarne's work, he is on one level a painter and sculptor who has exhibited broadly over the past 25 years. But perhaps more accurately, he's a polymath designer, writer, creative director, and artist who deals in the extremes of the human experience. In this conversation, we talk to Bjarne about victimhood, desire, and changing cultural thresholds for transgression. Trigger warning, everything on this episode, I'm Lil Internet joined by New Models founder Carly Busta and artist Daniel Keller, and of course, Bjarne Melgaard. Let's get right into it. So we're in the studio today with Bjarne Melgaard, the the most famous living Norwegian artist. Bjarne is in Berlin because he just premiered a new VR piece at the Julia Stoschek collection that he created with Acute Art. The piece is called My Trip. Is that right? Yes. Okay, 2019. And um, I highly recommend it. Johnny, in your own words, what would you say the narrative of my trip is? Uh, the narrative is a little bit about being both regressive and progressive. Uh-huh. You know, like the content and, you know, the characters are like actually my sculptures from my first one-man show at the Stedlik in 98. And to avoid this idea that this is such a contemporary medium, I wanted it kind of to be like this looking backwards right. in the piece and so it's it's, a, it's basically about DMT trips and it, I think it also is about going online you know going having a tour browser yeah. going to the dark web you know you suddenly get into chat rooms you really don't want to be in <laughs> and, you know and I, you know like for instance when I did the Whitney you know, we, we did so much research on the dark web. Right, the Whitney Biennial. And that was like 2013, uh, yeah, maybe? Is that yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And you actually got, came up with a name for the piece. I did? Let's <laughs> have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember? I, I was so I was happy because who... finally I had a title. <laughs> I had no fucking clue what to call it. <laughs> oh, my God. I am pretty sure that the first time I was ever on the dark web was at your house, uh-huh. which was um, on 29th Street, 30th mm-hmm. Street, 30th Street, and 7th Avenue, which was right around the corner from where I worked at mm-hmm. Art Forum at the mm-hmm. time. And I think it was like on a lunch break or something. I think I came over to yeah. your house um, as I do every once in a while, mm-hmm. and you were all your all the window blinds were shut <laughs> and i think all the lights were off it was very convincing and then you had a tower of you know a sort of computer tower like sort yes. of hacker yes. tower yeah. and um, there was some like incense burning mm-hmm. or some it's heavily scented and you were browsing the dark web mm-hmm. and the stuff that was coming up near screen was mm-hmm. really intense what did you see carly i think at this point you were interested in identities and how people could like buy and sell identities yes. or that was one of the things yeah. so in this piece the viewer enters into a space where i was uh so many years ago walking into your apartment seeing yeah. you at the computer finding your way onto the dark web what i thought was interesting by doing this vr piece is that you are confronted with the people or, or the system around it are so convinced that this medium is so radical. And I thought it was interesting to not really try to be claim the rights of history before you're dead. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, nobody knows if this is going to be the new immersive world changing the future. the future, yeah. yeah. You know, like as an artist, you know, you, I mean, I basically don't have that many ideas. You know, in my, in my, as an artist, I think I had three ideas. <laughs> really, in my whole life. That's like faces, animals, sex. <laughs> you know? So, sounds so, like Lesko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like Lesko Caves. Yeah, that's like, I was in this summer issue about gay discos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I went to get Oslo scene in the 1980s. I, I wrote, he wrote to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it was published. Wait, say this again. Where were you in the... In, uh, in Art Forum, they had like, you know, since the Stonewall was 50 years old. Oh, yeah. David Velasco, he invited me to write about my first oh. nightclub <laughs> experience. I said, go, like the ancient oh, cave paintings. Oh, I was doing David Velasco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but so you wrote for the summer issue of Art Forum, which yeah. was the Stonewall at yeah. 50. Yeah. And you wrote about being gay discos in the 80s in gay Oslo? Gay discos or? in Oslo. 
Yeah. How, what, can you just give us like a, well, you know, like I was like young, uh, I had long purple hair. I was into the anti-vivisection co- front. What is it? That anti-vivisection is like, front. Yeah. That is <laughs> what like, is that? It's like a militant group against animal experiment. So I was like, you know, selling their magazines and uh, organizing events where we would, for instance, show uh, experiments and baboons oh, and wow. having their brain open up while they have to sit there alive, stuff like that. That was Man. like skinny, skinny puppy was super into the anti-vivisection movement too. Like they had the album Vivisect 6 and a lot of their tour, like background tour footage was of like vivisection, live animal oh testing. Things. I mean, yeah. it's kind of oh. interesting. You think it probably became such a big catalyst for animal rights movements in the 80s just because access to the footage became available, right? And was able to be distributed probably with VHS tapes, right. copies, etc. I mean, we did video presentations right. at like squats, uh, mm. more artist plays, hangouts, all that. So, you know, I had long purple hair, kind of wearing makeup really badly. I was also like involved like in the Norwegian anarchistic politics scene and they hated me (laughs) (laughs) so so to get back to that art form article he wanted me to write about like my first encounter with like as a gay man oh yeah and that was that was like when i i think i was 17 or something i was kind of late and it was with a, a like a punk a punk rocker yeah who was super into pet shop boys (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so so after we have to lie and watch all these pet shop videos <laughs> wait there of course you know neil tennant's a big art collector now have yeah you, like yeah. ever i don't yeah. know if i ever. don't think he has anything on me <laughs> <laughs> but did it work are they do do they still do vivisections actually no i feel like it stopped right it's, it's more like pita and stuff now uh-huh okay yeah they yeah. stopped it then. did the watching all that pet shop boys get you in the mood Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I was never a punk rock fan. Yeah. I was, for me, it was no wave. You know, Lydia Lunch, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, Mars, DNA, you know, you, as you know yourself, you know, Richard Kern, yes. <laughs> Carly's Secret Past. <laughs> Definitely something I want to ask about. That's something podcast. we're going to come to soon. But, but, you know, so I was interested more in that, you know, like, I mean, I wasn't cool enough to fit in you know with really anybody kind of like a loner a little bit uh-huh. i left oslo in 91 the first time to go to the Jan van Eyck academy because i wanted to study icelandic conceptual art from the 70s which is and what that is for instance like uh, magnus paulson stangerman eggerson and all these people who were doing all their publication at the Jan van Eyck academy i had just published my first book on hong kong publications that were publishing all these Icelandic artists. So I applied six times to the Norwegian Academy (laughs) before I came in. And then finally I went to Poland and went on a Polish state scholarship. And that finally let me in. Okay, oh, <laughs> And I think they just like were sick of me, so just like <laughs> let's let him in. <laughs> I mean Hong Kong publications that focused on seventies Icelandic conceptual art. I mean this sounds like pretty like internet before the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Hong Kong press is like awesome. It's Karina Hedean and Ingrid Bu. And they were my teachers. Uh. And they and when I came finally to the academy, I started doing installations where I I trained Chihuahuas. I put on baby clothes on them, I dressed them up and I would train them to sit in minimalistic lines. <laughs> And this Hong Kong press thought was so amazing, so they made a book about it. Wow. Uh, should bring that back, I think. Yeah. It should be reincorporated into your practice. You, yeah, I mean, I was, I was really bonding with these chihuahuas because we, we, my mom knew this woman who had like a chihuahua farm. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, like... A, kennel it was like really literally 50 chihuahuas there sitting them looking at them to make them sit still (laughs) what was your trick it was like psychic communication (laughs) yeah exactly you know know? and some of them i trained to lie on their back so you can see the belly lying like this (laughs) so that was my experience of hong kong press highly recommended to google 
Okay, so that was the 90s. And then I think the first time you showed in New York, was it at, was it at Alleged Gallery in yeah. 2000? Yeah. And, um, 1999. 1999. Yeah. Okay. You had a show there, I think it was like of Apes. Yeah, it was it was sculptures of from Planet of the Ape fist fucking. And then afterwards, the gallery closed. Yeah, they blame me for making them bankrupt, (laughs) 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 which I don't know is true. There's a lot of other stuff that was going on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it wasn't only me. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But then you came back again. The next time was at Rena Spallings. Yeah, I did a show called Question of Rape. Was it basically these black and white photos from Berlin? that I'd taken from my window, like kind of this, that looking at strangers. Boyer. And one photo was a guy that was tied up in duct tape in my bed. But I just remember John Kelsey, he, he actually put the advertisement for the show and my record label at the time, Institute of Civil Disobedience, he put it in the Michelle Bernstein, All the King's Horses. So if you open, there's one page where he has like Rena Spaulding, yeah. all these things. Oh, right. I guess it was around the same time yeah. as that was being yeah. translated yeah. or whatnot. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. I mean, so animals are the theme in your work, but mm. also there's this theme of victimhood in your work mm. and where the line is between the two. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, like, when we think about today and the kind of online outrage and there's so much pleasure people take in mm. watching other people be taken down. Or being humiliated. Or being humiliated. Mm. And I think it's interesting that this is something that you dealt with in your work before the internet had even shown us yeah. this to be a phenomenon. Uh-huh. But for you, some of this injustice comes from animal rights. Or but it, but it, also, it also came from, you know, growing up as a young gay man in Oslo. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and it, it then it wasn't cool be gay in Oslo, uh, for sure. Later, when I started working with like, uh, curators like Jan Hut, Barty Barr, you know, the, all those Belgian museums, I, you know, like, I was confronted with a lot of homophobia from white macho artists that I did group shows with. So for me, very early on, I started to dress up a lot for my openings, you know? And they got really provoked. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, why, why are you dressing up? Really? And I think that at an opening, it's like as important what you wear as what you show. Yeah, of course. You know? I mean, of course. Also, because the record of you as an artist is always cataloged through the images of you at your opening or whatnot. And it's like we all know that the image of the artist plays Mm. a big role Mm. in in how the art ends up looking. Yeah. And I think that this piece, the VR piece, is somehow dealing with how I reflect upon what happened with her, this whole gay liberation. I talk about Paul Benatar, this antinatalist philosopher, Paul Ehrlich, uh, also like Camus, who, ha- you know, in '42 came with this notion of suicide as maybe the only philosophical question. Mm-hmm. And I think now the kind of only philosophical question you can ask is like, shall we really procreate anymore? <laughs> Dan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have some thoughts about that. Less, that's all. Yeah, so. yeah I think <laughs> we should stop. <laughs> and then what? Then it, it, it will continue anyway. <laughs> right. You know, you know what? I think it also like you have now this whole discourse about non-binary, transgender, yep. whatever, and they all operate with a family structure, you know? And I'm kind of like amazed that... You know, I would never, I don't want to be a part of any community. I don't want to have any family. I, you know, like, but I'm, I'm amazed that a structure that is so regress, repressive as the family structure is being used so without any real reflection. Like everybody's talking about their community. I have my family, whatever. And I think then it went into like, you know, gays, you know, kind of became, became these caricatures yeah of like heteronormative structures, like having babies, right. wanting to be, go to church, you know, like, I mean, I mean, I mean uh, for instance, recognized. in the book, in the latest book by Travis Jeppesen, mm-hmm. he, he has a piece to me where he also writes about that, you know, maybe we never had any gay liberation, <laughs> you know, maybe, 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 you know, maybe we should have asked other questions Then you know, are we going to go to the military? Who fucking want to go to the military? <laughs> right. You know, can we marry? Yeah. Like, who want to marry? You know, can we have kids? No, <laughs> I don't want a fucking kid. I hate kids. <laughs> so Travis in Bad Writing, he talks a little bit about that. 
you know, like when I grew up and I was younger, I was like really into Queercore, G.B. Jones, Bruce Bruce, that whole GD scene. I just feel like now it's, it's all kind of like faded out a bit. And it's all this kind of gentrified diversity. You know, like, where are we really going? I mean, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a show like Pose, for instance. Is that, that beneficial for transsexuals? A show like to, what? Pose. You know, oh, Pose, Pose, you yeah. know, like where... The fa- I mean, family unit is, like, very important it's in like, that show, I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. That is built around the idea of family. Yeah, and but I, that's real, no? I mean, drag families are real. That, that's that a, is that's real. Not a new thing. I just think that it's interesting that so few people maybe reflect and ask some questions about those structures. We, what, what is a replacement for, for a family or a small community? I mean, clearly there's some uh, human need for something like that. I mean, some kind of support net. And I, I mean, clearly the state isn't, isn't filling But in. I mean, I think that, you know, like maybe it's, you know, like I'm next year I'm curating a show with Chris Corda from Church of Euthanasia. Uh-huh. And I do it together with, I do like a Medicom toy of the light bulb man as an anabolic warrior. So he's on steroids as a toy with Medicom in Japan. And he's talking about like, maybe, maybe it's time to end it, mm-hmm. you know? Maybe questions in a way are not always meant to be replaced with another answer, uh-huh. you know? Maybe we need to ask other questions. Or to let some things go to their terminus yeah. and let the ground fall out from underneath them yeah. and see how that restructures yes. things. Yes. I mean, it is, and it's not just a, a question of like gay rights or something. I mean, one could say like pole dancing being a class that people can sign mm-hmm. up for as part of their like open gym Berlin system. All these pieces of transgression mm-hmm. have become um, gentrified in a way. Yeah. So then there's no space to go mm-hmm. except for like more, even more extreme acts of violence. Yeah. So maybe one should make a space where those, I mean, this is theoretical. It's hard to say like, yeah, we should have mass destruction. That would be really nice. But maybe that's like, that is what's needed. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe... Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel? So obviously like the ideations of a gay identity have changed a lot since the eighties and maybe like in a super accelerated way in the past 10 years, Mm -hmm. how would you, as you said, the way Bruce LaBruce read in 1999 is Mm -hmm. way different than Mm -hmm. 2019. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the gay identity might've been in the late nineties before the internet say, and now? Well, I think you had like your whole, like this movement queer core. Yeah. That was like basically around this fancy in JD, which Bruce Bruce did with GB Jones, which I also thought was kind of interesting that she was a lesbian who was like very outspoken sexually. And she did occur. I mean, there were also the publication on our backs was like the kind of first lesbian porn mag. Yeah, yeah. And and I I feel like there were there were this this thing like you know we are not cool, we don't fit in anywhere, and that's fine. Yeah. F- fuck everybody, <laughs> you know. Right, right. And right. I think maybe you know I mean in the end I just think maybe it's about not giving a fuck about anything. Yeah, right. You know, to just say, fuck it. But everyone's so scared these days, right? Like everyone is so worried about the fact that they're going to be canceled and they're going to be like cut off from their resources, their community. But but they're a collective paranoia. Yeah, it is a collective paranoia. Yeah. And also, also I think that you have now really have a discourse that is replaced by fear. People are so worried about saying something wrong, something that is not politically maybe well articulated. You have to take into consideration all kinds of margins. Mm-hmm. And I think it in in those days it was it was more more maybe more artistic, you know? Like I think that it was more like an artist identity. Where you found some sense of sanity or you felt some relief in mm, being outside, mm. whereas now there's a real fear about it. Or what do you think people are afraid of at the core? I mean, what comes first to mind is, of course, climate, mm-hmm. which is yeah. like, which is also is interesting to see in relationship to this idea of a family structure. Because in Norway, we have like the, this Green Party who are giving interviews with a three-month-year-old baby on their lap. <laughs> and that child is 
giving 58% more carbon footprint than anything else on the planet. <laughs> the most climate horrific thing you can do is make another kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is music to dance here. Yes, I agree. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, the most and effective I, and climate policy. And I, th- I think also, like, you have Greta Thunberg. Yeah, what's your take on Greta I mean, Thunberg? Come on, get rid of her. <laughs> I mean, she. I mean, she's blocking. You know, active. You know, I know climate activists in Norway who are militant, who want to go on civil disobedience, whatever. And she is basically just stopping all kind of discourse on climate. I mean, for instance, also like, what about Greenpeace? They fucking were on like rigs and oil rigs in the in 1970. Blowing oh, up yeah, boats. It's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. True. I mean, yeah. And it's also like, it's of course we want this better with Greta Thunberg because she's a 16 year old girl. And you, uh, you know, it's so horrible to say anything wrong about Greta Thunberg. <laughs> you know? Yeah, why, why can't we say anything bad about Greta yeah. Thunberg? Why? Well, I think, I think it is because she's young and she, she gives this. Uh, notion of you know like we can all achieve something as long as we to- are together mm. but let's face it she hasn't it's nothing she solved it's what, what would be your climate plan what would you my what climate would you plan yeah. would be to sterilize the male population <laughs> to and really have a real discourse around family identity family uh, structures also maybe say that is it a quality to live in a time where you feel like almost everything is going to hell yeah because like i mean i was in this summer i was in athens oh yeah is, that's a hellscape that's like i mean they basically is the country in the world with most national debt Oh, they're, yeah. they're never going to get out of it and china owns them yeah i mean yeah and, but but what happened like they have like a flourishing art life. You know, there's so many cool things there. I'm doing like a big thing with a breeder next year. And they are like, you come and you stay here in Athens and you make everything on the spot. Cool. That's all. That's what we're interested in. Yeah. And they have like real anarchistic fractions there. Yeah. yeah. They have like people throwing Molotov cocktails at the police. They have riots, everything. And this is what I mean. Like Greta Thunberg is like standing like a fucking brick wall <laughs> in front of all these other angry young people yeah. who obviously want to save the planet. Dan has some facts on Greta. Oh, I mean, she's absolutely supported. She's supported by Monaco royalty, by real estate investors, yeah. by BMW as a sponsor of the yacht. I mean, she is very much, that is her purpose, is yeah. to be this wall in front of actual radical change because... Yeah, I think this is the corporate sort of NGO mm. way of hijacking the radical things that need to happen. So, but, but right I mean, I mean, I mean, also her parents are like super corrupt. Yeah, well, yeah. Parents parents, like a, like Eurovision a, singer, Eurovision yeah. singer. Like, <laughs> her, her mom yeah. gave out her like a biography about the kids Asperger's syndrome, <laughs> and she put on her own book a photo Greta Thunberg. Oh you God. know, for, for making more sales. And, and when she started the school strike, she was actually working with one of the biggest commercial agencies in Sweden to oh, get yeah. most followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. No, I completely yeah, see of that. Course. So she's a little corrupt thing. <laughs> <laughs> we should get rid of her. <laughs> Well, one thing I always really appreciate about your work um, is that you allow people to go to the worst fantasy from the beginning. You follow the biographies of people with really complex, dark, a Michael Alec or mm. Teresa Duncan mm. or people who have walked into the black hole emoji and fallen yeah. through it, yeah. you know? Mm. And um, I wonder, though, did you ever feel any crazy blowback? What, what do you mean by blowback? Like... And maybe this is a factor of you not being online that much. Yeah. Because I think people online... It's also if you're reliant on those platforms for your work, already kind of exposing yourself. You know, like, my interaction online is basically this Instagram. Right, okay. You know, I I don't go on any chat rooms or any discussions or anything. So I I haven't really felt any blowout from, from it. Yeah, I mean that seems to prove the point that yeah. like so much of the paranoia I, I feel is a bound bit to like, platforms. I feel like New York has changed a lot. You know, like I feel the whole way of dealing with art, what what the discourse is. I, I get sometimes like really embarrassed. 
I know. Like Amy Greenspan and that yeah. situation that yeah. happened where... With Boyd Rice with Boyd and Rice. Daria. I'm trying to get that show to Oslo. <laughs> There you go. I think that there is this shift in perception from it being artistic expression into it being a platform. And because you have this platform, Mm -hmm. you have this responsibility to use it. And there's all this kind of utilitarian logic to Mm. having any kind of voice publicly at all. That didn't used to be the case. Mm. It was about self-expression. And obviously that's closer to what the ideals of art is. So I think it is this confusion of what a platform is in general. That's a good analysis. Mm. I think that's totally on point. I mean, a gallery, it's not a, it's not a platform. I mean, it's a platform right. for the artists maybe, but it's not, it doesn't need to have, I don't know, some social utility. I just don't yeah. think that's part but of I, the job. I mean, it's also just a part of the expanding quantification, transactional, computational, you know, your speech is suddenly a platform where consent becomes like this transactional Thing that has to be signed and agreed to and stamped. I mean, it is quantifying every aspect of human life and ascribing a value to it. Yeah. Because obviously there's literally a micro cent value, but to everything you type, say, right. do on it. Yeah. And because it's kind of a place where people spend a lot of their life and communication, the idea of everything being quantified and having a value and forming a transaction of some sort then has bled into everything else in the real world, even galleries, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I wonder, how has the term victim changed for you since the 90s? Do you think that the idea of what a victim is has changed? Yeah, I do. I think that, for instance, like, you know, I think that it became very clear that it changed with the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that it became very clear with third wave feminism. But I also thought it became very clear that, for instance the third wave feminism, I was surprised that the references like Andrea Dworkin mm-hmm. never s- surfaced, even if Jonah Faitman just gave out... A whole new book. A whole yeah. book, uh, Last Days at the Hot Slate. Can you say for a minute like who, who she is? And- Andrea Dworkin was a, probably the most radical American feminists who wrote about... Uh, she wrote a book called Intercourse, Mercy. And one book, Intercourse, is, you know, usually it's interpreted that she says penetration is rape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she isn't really saying that in the book. She's more, more saying that there is a void between a man and a woman that is so huge mm-hmm. that you can't fill it. I love Andrea Dworkin. I have made paintings I about know, Andrea yeah. Dworkin. I also like Gail Rubin. You know who did all this? She who identified as a gay man in the S and M scene in San Francisco, and she wrote those like thesis on that. And I was, I mean, I was missing, you know, when when you know you were talking to younger women about like, for instance, they say I'm word working who, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then then I think that you know like. With the Me Too movement and everything, I think it was what was important was that you know people can go to the workplace without being harassed. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But what I think wasn't working is that if you want to have this feminist revolution, you really have to take the other half of the the male population in the program. Uh huh. And what do, you, what do you imagine? And I, and I think that who is benefiting from patriarchy? Yeah, right. men, men the least. Yeah, I mean they have the highest suicide rates. They have prostate cancer, gets no research money. <laughs> the jails are full of male men. They die faster than the divorce. They usually, and also like they have no access to the kids. So that shift, I was also thinking like there's really is a male victim also, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. And I think that shifted for me because I think it's sad that more men, especially in the art world, they are terrified of women. They're so afraid of saying something wrong or, you know, doing something wrong. And those women are always disappointed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, so I think the shift in, on that, really. I, I keep on thinking, though, of like different kinds of victims. I mean, this is, this is like, of course, controversial to talk about, but like the idea that I mean, this sounds like it's straight out of the 70s, but we've lost this discourse of there being 
some kind of desire for being the victim and something that your work has also dealt mm. with. You know, let's go back to your chihuahuas mm. lining up in a line. Mm. They were under your control. They yeah. had to be submissive yeah. to you. Yeah. They had yeah. to wear these costumes, which yes. were humiliating. Yeah. But they're dogs, so it doesn't mm. matter. I mm. mean, I guess, mm. right? But they're presumably enjoying it. I mean, they're not, you, you are at the same time part of this, you know, like anti-vivisection. You know, you care about animals. Like, well, you, you know, I mean, you would not I, do something I, that harms I, I, them, right? I was with them for weeks. Right. So it was, I mean, it was, it was, you know, at some point I felt that they were also controlling me a bit, <laughs> right. you know, with those big eyes, you know, that I, that I, you know, you just felt like, can I really do this to you? <laughs> and they look at you and like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. And when you have this, of course, I mean, even when you, you also, your work deals a lot with like, um, like serial killers and psychopaths mm-hmm. and like, there is a victim perpetrator dialectic. There yeah. is, and there is a libidinal connection between these yeah. two. And I'm, you know, not, not, I, I feel like I'm trying to make a case for like, it's totally fine to like be a serial killer. But um but I, I think there is there is something more complex here that we used to be able to talk about. Yeah. But like now it's just it's become so simplified that we can't discuss any of the dynamics yeah. within that relationship. Yeah. And like I remember, I don't know if this is the best transition, but I remember you at one point talking about, maybe it was something you were asked to do for PS1 and you had this proposal for like a kids camp. Yeah, I had for, from... Um uh, Jenny Stenska. Oh yeah. She wanted me to run like a kid school, and I suggested the first thing they should do was meet my therapist Anatina, <laughs> who catched rat live rats by her hands. Oh right, I remember her. Yeah. She used to wear this like yeah. kind of yeah, she had bone like this, in her ear. Uh, yeah. So so that was but that that didn't happen. Okay. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well. I don't know if that was the best transition for victimhood, but there. <laughs> but, but I remember a few other elements to that too, but maybe they'll go on set. But this idea that there can sometimes be, I mean, okay, we can talk about the idea that um, like I did a series with you of photographs mm. and like where I was on some level interested in being mm. in a compromised situation. Mm. You know, you're obviously, you're a guy, you're mm. a lot bigger than I mm. am. You're older, you know, you're mm. like more powerful mm. in lots of different ways. Mm. But I was interested in somehow having this, mm. this somewhat compromised relationship. Mm. And there's a, there's a desire in that. And mm. one can have power in being in a submissive position. Yes. And when we talk about SM or BDSM or any of these things mm. too, which on the one hand are being gentrified, but on the yeah. other hand, you can't talk about them, the, the way these relations play out yeah. in quote, quote, real life, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know, has, has BDSM or has, I don't know if you are like what your relationship to any of those scenes mm, are anymore mm, is, mm. but do you think that it's changed like in as a cultural signifier in a time when victimhood has also changed and the fantasy around being a victim or being a well, perpetrator? Well, I think, I think that, you know, it, it became a lot about like the fetish scene, uh-huh. about latex. It became, I feel like it became so much about the external. Oh, like a style, basically. The style of it. Yeah. Then, then, you know, the actual sexual activity. Yeah. Is it, so so it's, a tar- it's like a target market now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do people do when they want to feel so like part of part of gay culture has always well one section of it has been to be outside with other other people, like yeah. to, to be outside of the mainframe. And mm-hmm. obviously like bondage or these kinds of things was also feeling like you were a bit outside of mm. whatever a normative profile is. So like what for you, it feels like it, it gets you out of the normative or gentrified or a space where you can think freely without being inscribed in the family or whatever um, doctrine seems to be oppressive. Mm. Well, I don't know. I think that I just sometimes go back and look at things that meant a lot to me to kind of create that mental space. I mean, for instance, when I feel like shit, I look at my Lori Parson uh-huh. uh, stuff, like her photos or reading this amazing story about how she became this art superstar. And then she did an empty show in an empty space. It had no name on the invitation card. And then she was doing this show in Germany and the collective bought the whole show and she stopped doing art and became a social worker. When was this? Uh, this is in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. She's the first one who exhibited her bed in an ex- exhibition space. Before Tracy Eman. Uh, yeah. 30 years before Tracy Eman. And so she you go also, back and Yeah, look I go back and look at this. And, and then at the same time, you know, like I, I, I mean, for me, those, you know, those spaces was a lot materialized by drugs. Uh-huh. You know, that you kind of take something to take you out of your unconsciousness. Yeah. 
Um, so I, said, I don't do that much anymore. So I'm not, I'm not sure, you know? What role do you think drugs play um, in, or what role do you think drugs have in contemporary culture right now? I think it has a pretty high role. Uh-huh. I think people are consuming drugs on a much ad- more advanced level than before. Meaning like bigger variety, they yeah. know more about they them. They know more about They know it. more about yeah. like stacking yeah. different yes, narcotics. Yes, yes, yes. You can get DMT in vape pens like this now, actually. You, you, yes. Yeah, you smoke, I mean, you, you, <laughs> you smoke can vape DMT. DMT? Do yeah. vape DMT, sure. Yeah. I have it at home. Really? Mm-hmm. What what drug do you think is the most like is the drug that's kind of most um, necessary for our moment or feels most compatible with our moment? Mm, I would say acid. People microdose acid a lot. Now. Yeah, yeah. My, people microdose acid a lot. Yeah, but isn't like microdosing itself? I mean, I have enjoyed it. It kind of is like an antidepressant or something. But it's like a lot of people take it to like boost the productivity for their bosses. You that's know? what I was gonna I mean, say. It's, it's like it's like for Silicon Valley, everybody's yeah. microdosing. I mean, also, I mean, even DMT. I mean, it's called like the, you know the 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 businessman's trip because it's yeah. only a few minutes. I mean, it's Near literally back to normal, literally right? that. This right. is though. I am worried about recuperation of you know in the SNM scene or gay marriage is kind of a a aspect of this too where everything that was kind of outsider transgressive gets pulled in uh, adopted protected by this kind of system of control or turning everything into a transaction it normalizes it it pulls the stigma and illegality off of it but again, then, where are the outside spaces? But what is the goal of transgression if it's not to eventually to... become co-opted and change the mainstream? I mean, right. what is the well, end state? Well, I feel like it's, a, it's just like freedom from being instrumentalized. Something's transgressive when it can't be recuperated, right? Like, I'm doing this. My boss doesn't benefit from me doing this. And it gives me like a sense of risk, something that can't be monetized, something that can't. feels hard to find things that are not an Instagram hashtag already yeah. anymore <laughs> to, yeah. to feel like you're at least breaking the invisible chain, so to speak. I mean, to find a place outside or to feel a thrill of like... But maybe is it really the outside we should look at now? I mean, haven't we looked enough for the outside? I mean, I'm sometimes thinking like, you know, do we really need to feel outside anymore? Uh-huh. Maybe that's not really relevant. I mean, we've been, uh, so many people felt outside for uh, God knows how long. I mean, <laughs> give it a break, you know, <laughs> relax yeah, a bit. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're not going to get like... Lydia Lunch and Richard Kern's fingered yeah. that moment again. Yeah. You know? I mean, I love Lydia. I think she's still awesome. Yeah, she's still doing her thing. She's, she's, she's still doing yeah, it. Yeah, it's great. You know, what I thought was kind of interesting was that thing with Michelle Macron. You know, that she did this huge collaboration with Pornhub. I that, didn't know that. Michelle you know? Macron did a collaboration with Pornhub. Well, you know, she was going bankrupt. So yeah. she opened a gallery in Los Angeles. And, you know, then of course, she had. She represents two artists, but somehow she managed to get a collaboration with Pornhub. Well, Pornhub has like a new you know, Ryder Rips, I yeah. think, is their yeah. creative oh, director, that's... and it's really what? changed. Yeah. No, oh, way. you just saw the Pornhub Awards, I think, was yeah, yesterday. Yeah. And there's like these watercolored, I mean, it, like the aesthetic of it is, yeah, I mean, okay, it's gentrified. And, but, I mean, but, my, my, but Michael, so Michelle's funny. show, it had a real relevance. Yeah. I mean, it had performers by Nash's sister. Karen Finley, you could get like a sexting uh, situation with her. <laughs> you could have been drawn nude by Delia Brown. That's so <laughs> funny because of but, course... But I think it's so awesome that somebody that everybody says you're just a train wreck. She goes and suddenly get the biggest platform on earth for her show. <laughs> Four million clicks a minute. Oh my God. Four million clicks a minute on Pornhub, yeah. I mean, like I, yesterday I met an old friend of mine, Clementine Delis, that I did, you know, I did this publication, The oh, Teaser. teaser. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I remember when we were doing that publication, we spoke a lot about the quality of doing things that you don't show. Mm-hmm. That you just do, you know, like artworks or whatever you do, and you don't document them or you don't present them and you don't speak about them. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is also a way to be able to approach things in a new way right. by taking them away from this whole 
internet interconnectivity. I think of like Belmar's photographs. I mean, they were yeah. never meant for the art market, no. right? Yeah. So he had like mm. certain drawings that he yeah. would do, but the photographs yeah. were personal. Mm. And of course, now mm. there's a huge market for mm. them. They also were really interesting, mm. but that's not what I made yeah. for. I thought it was interesting for your VR piece. There's like a DMT element because I feel like DMT is one of those things that shows you how low resolution VR actually is <laughs> yeah. compared to... Uh, something that immersive and rich, like uh, like Pixar inside your brain. <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting that you know, with VR, I mean that they can't make a clear image. Yeah, it's, it's all pixelated. Yeah, no matter yeah. how much technology and money goes into it, they, they just can't make it fucking clear. Um, was DMT a recent thing for you to get into, or had you done it? A you, you know, like. The piece isn't really about DMT mm -hmm. because I also kind of agree it's a little bit like, you know, like upper middle class on a trip for 50 minutes. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, I think it's great for that reason because also visually it's the kind of the best, I think. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, the hallucination you get on DMT is just amazing. Really yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's like fantastic. So, so, but, but what was your question? Well, I just wondered, I feel like there are anti-addictive properties to it. It's like even in your body feels absolutely amazing. It's visually so rich, but you don't want to keep doing it over and over. Mm. It's like, it has like an anti-addictive mechanism built into it, despite sometimes being a really hedonic, like really pleasurable drug. And I wonder if, you know, I can imagine DMT actually for someone who likes drugs being something that helps them get away from maybe more addictive. But, but I uh, mean, like the recent research on LSD, psilocybin, right. DMT has shown that people who are, who are struggling with heavy addictions, they manage to, you know, easier uh -huh. To deal with them through, for instance, going to a really strong LSD trip or taking DMT, you know? But it, but there's also this other side to it. If you go online, you know, you have all these chat rooms with psychonauts, they're called. Uh -huh. They are like, you know, <laughs> writing about all their near-death experiences. And it's interesting to read them because they're also disappointed. <laughs> so, so I think that there is this, this thing with like it's supposed to be so amazing, but I don't think it's that amazing. amazing. <laughs> um, I still think crystal meth is the best. <laughs> Do you ever have a near-death experience on crystal meth? <laughs> no. I, I masturbated once an hour for seven hours on crystal meth. But once God. an hour for seven hours <laughs> yes. or for seven hours? Okay, Once fair. an hour for seven hours. Cool. It's only cool. I only did it once. Was it the best drug experience you'd ever had? I mean, it was like a bell ringer for sure for like the first <laughs> couple of minutes. Like ding, ding, ding. Like, wow. But then I didn't like being awake for that long. No, it's, oh, it's yeah. like you, you get sick of being awake for four, four days in a row. Oh, the thing yeah. that's interesting, though, is that I did like, I thought I was going to be able to go to sleep and like go to work the next day but I didn't sleep at all. <laughs> and uh, But at work, nobody knew anything was amiss. I had a, like an actually really productive, fine work day. And that's like, <laughs> it's one of those things that are like really can be really functional. But, but you know, I mean, like people well, I was, like Adderall. I was yeah. super functional at Crystal Met. Uh -huh. I got 100 emails done in the one hour <laughs> you know that's gonna be the new thing that they do in Silicon Valley instead of micro yeah I mean, that's what they should do yeah, mm. yeah they microdose meth in World War II a lot too <laughs> yeah. yes they right. did yeah yeah Her um, yeah, that all yeah. basically they were just giving it out to citizens. Yeah. It was widely distributed and like, yeah, and Germans, they soldiers. were all just high the entire time. And also opiates. I mean, it was just they were oh, right. speedballing all the war. Hung that hungry. Yeah. yeah. Good war. The drugs are always the wartime hack. Especially yeah. as I think like for Blitzkriegs, it was just like, yeah, they're on meth. <laughs> right. I mean, duh. Yeah. Whoa. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think another thing, though, I, I was just thinking about is, uh, I mean, calib calibration seems to be off for people today, especially knowing what real trauma and real violence is and also the extent of what people go through in the world today. And I mean, looking at some of your work, there's I mean, you explore a lot of the darkest 
elements of uh, human existence and child soldiers and things mm -hmm. like that. And I know you've also personally kind of uh, been into really extreme lifestyles and mm -hmm. what would be considered extreme activity. And to me, though, there, there's a calibration, though, that comes from that, mm -hmm. that kind of it, it reminds you where on the scale of what the full experience of humanity Life, is, yeah. mm. what like actual violence being an actual victim or actual suffering is like that. I think a lot of people in the safety of the screen all the time, actually their calibration is totally off. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe people could benefit from calibrating themselves with a bit of a deeper dive into the darker <laughs> elements of, yeah. of the world to just remind them. Because what what's also interesting to see now with all this internet and all the kind of activism is this, I think there's a certain lack of empathy with like, you know, like what, what we talked about before, like people are really rooting for somebody if they can be publicly humiliated yeah. because they touched someone 20 years ago right. or whatever. I mean, it's like, I feel also in the art world, it's not become totally ruthless. Yeah, I mean, that's I feel, I feel irony, like there's yeah. no mercy anymore. Yeah. I mean, before there was, a, at least they were a little friendly. Yeah. Now they're just monsters. If you're an artist and if it's like one word, person's word against another, mm. then, you know, you're even just the suggestion that maybe you might have done something. But if, it, it's also a little bit interesting to see in that relationship what happened with Matthew Malouf in LA. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. You know? That whole, he he called this what was it called? <laughs> I'm I'm like I mean this is again we can't really talk about it in the cast actually because there's a lawsuit against Luke Turner uh, because yeah I mean I'm one of the victims of Luke Turner uh -huh. along with Maloof yeah. he's been going after me because saying, I, yeah. I want I want actually to ask you what that was about because <laughs> I never really understood it yeah I mean I can give Dan? you the rundown. Well, it's the same logic of sort of QAnon or conspiracy theories online. It's right. a sort of fantastical reading, really like close, critical readings mm -hmm. of texts and images and interpretations, and then connecting these wild dots. I mean, and like that's happening on the left as much as mm -hmm. on the right. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, your work right at the time when we were getting into screen space, you were dealing super physically with sculptures, with dolls and mannequins, mm -hmm. and um, reminding us of like real world material horrors mm -hmm. that like cannot in any scale compared to some silly image online or yeah. some small comment Someone online. Someone liking a meme. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Was exactly. Yeah. Like, Literally, that's what this all started yeah, with. Right, yeah. right, right. So, that so was, much of it is policing humor and about jokes and what is yeah. okay to joke about. And that just seems like that is not the place where activism should be. I no. mean, It's giving primacy to the image over the reality. Yeah. But that's the function of our time. Yeah. Right? The simulation is primacy over the real world. And our decisions are being made in that framework. In the real world, then, do you want to say just what you're up to in the coming months or the year? I know you've got a bunch of projects that are in progress. Well, I have gallery shows coming up. Um, I have an interesting project for New York with a very interesting curator. Uh -huh. Can you say? That I can't say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and, but I'm basically, maybe the, one of the most interesting things I'm doing right now is that I'm doing the show for the opening of the Munch Museum. Oh, cool. Where they're doing Munch and Surrealism, and it's the biggest, it's the new building, it's opening, but it's also the biggest show they ever put on. Uh -huh. And what is interesting with that show is they were asking themselves, we have these artists like Surrealism, Hans Bellmer, Man Ray, who were so radical at their time, being presented as ultimate bores in <laughs> museums. Uh -huh. So we wanted to kind of, the curator, he wanted to bring me in as a scenographer. So I'm not an artist there. I'm like a scenographer. And we, we took like also a really cheesy theme, which is nightclubbing, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So we're mixing like, you know, Disco 2000 with, you know, um, Man Ray. Wow. And then I have a retrospective at the Henny Umsta, oh, cool. which I oppose to a lot. You I do not want to do a retrospective. <laughs> so I suggested that I'm going to do a retrospective of my iPhone photos. 
I'm giving I give it, you know there's this hippest uh, advertisement company in Norway so I'm gonna just give them all my iPhones and they can make an installation of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. <laughs> that, because I have some real, you know, like where I snort so much coke that my nose is like 50 times bigger, you know? <laughs> like, because somehow I had this weird notion that every time I felt really, really bad, I had to photograph it. <laughs> so I have so many, like when I had a good time, I never, I don't have a fucking photo of it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know? That sounds about right. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, like the whole idea of doing retrospective, I mean, is, is that, you know, I mean, I don't know what art really should be about, right. you know, but I mean, I don't think it should be about, you know, positioning yourself in historical terms while you're alive. I totally agree. And I think yeah. that is like a lot of artists doing now yeah they're placing themselves in historical settings way too early yeah and it looks so corny in retrospect or yes. it looks like it looks like a fleeting it's like a like a fleeting thought can i ask one more question yeah it's i mean i wonder because you've dug so deep in the dark web into really esoteric ex extreme imagery mm -hmm. uh do you think there is kind of a is it possible to reach the end of aesthetic references in this day and age like really see every type of image there is to see mm. and like do you still find new things that make you excited yes and no <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if i search so much for it mm. anymore i mean like i i digged into so much dark web that I feel like done it for my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I kind of think we're past peak dark web anyways. I mean, most yeah. of the dark I mean, I mean the dark web is like, that's over. Well, yeah, dark exactly. web is yeah. the all, I mean, it's like that iceberg from the dark web yeah. like diagram. Yeah. The iceberg's melted. Yeah. <laughs> but know? I mean, I thought it was also like in a VR, I thought it was kind of interesting to, that it, the references is a bit dorky. Oh, I love it. Because yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah. that iceberg is dorky. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and also to come but also I thought what what the piece is I feel is really about also is about getting old. Uh-huh. You know that you know you're getting old, you're getting fat, you know, you are like you know you're not like the same person. Mm -hmm. And what happens then? Mm -hmm. You know? And that that's why I thought it was interesting to go back and look at those characters that maybe they are not that interesting, but they are at least my characters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There was something that came from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought I thought maybe 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 that is in a way kind of a little bit the essence of that piece. Oh, it's almost like your retrospective happened in VR. Like yeah. the drawings, the, yeah. the the visual textures, mm. they're all there in a 14 yeah. minute VR yeah. experience. It's pretty yeah. good do you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> do you have plans to do any more VR or is that a kind of a one off? I'm more into this iPhone. Or just <laughs> <laughs> I want to see those images. Let's anyway. Well, cool. Well, Varney, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you so much for having and me. Go check out my trip at Julia Stashek. It's good and intense and yeah. Okay, thank cool. you very thank much. You. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to New Models Top Soil and a big thank you to Bjarne Melgaard for coming on the show. Bjarne's work, My Trip, which was produced by Acute Art, is on view at Berlin's Julius Stoschek Collection through December 15th. And apologies for me and Carly not being so active on the Discord the past couple of weeks. We've been trapped in a personal work hell, but you will see the fruits of our labor very soon. See you next episode.